Whether dressed as disgruntled villagers, a weathered sailing crew, waltzing party guests, or legions of soldiers, the Metropolitan Opera Chorus often plays a major role in productions at the Met. But who leads, manages, and prepares this group of elite choristers? Find out on today's episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the Guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. To learn more, visit metguild.org. I'm Naomi Baratera. This past November, the Met Guild welcomed esteemed Metropolitan Opera Chorus Master Donald Palumbo to our Musical Chairs interview series. Today, we hear Maestro Palumbo in conversation with our Executive Director of Program Development, Paul Gruber. He'll give us a behind-the-scenes look at his work with the Met Opera Chorus, including stories from his first Met season over a decade ago, and about the path that led him from a chemistry degree to choral conducting. Thank you very much. Welcome to the first musical chairs of the season. And thank you very much for coming. Uh, Pleasure. This is really a special year. The the chorus is heavily involved. Um, And in addition, um, you're getting incredible reviews constantly for every show. And then Guillaume Tell happened. Yeah. And and really put the spotlight on the chorus in ways that um, they rarely get. Uh, Guillaume Tell, I think, was just such a, an adventure for us because no one knew the opera. I mean, it hadn't been done for how many years right. here? And um, I don't think any of us realized how much choral music there really was until we sat down at the first rehearsal and started singing. And after the first hour of rehearsal, we realized we'd gotten through like this much of the score, and we had this much of, of score to learn. Um, in fact, in the critical edition, the complete score, just the piano vocal score, is two volumes this, this thick. And probably, oh, at least two-thirds of it is, is choral writing, it seems like. So um, we didn't quite realize how big a project it was until, until we really got into the rehearsal right. process. Right. Um, that coupled with the fact that right now we're working on L'Amour de Loin, the very difficult Sariao piece. So the beginning of this season has sort of been a, a test for us. Yeah. Um, I don't know if, if they, they scheduled this, but it's also my 10th anniversary year. So I, uh, I just wonder if they haven't planned this in some way to, to highlight <laughs> the chorus this year. But we do feel, we do feel under... Uh, under a lot of uh, pressure this year because of the repertoire. Yeah. I'd like to start, uh, those of you who have attended this series know that we like to find out how how the artists got started, where they came from. (laughs) You grew up in Rochester. Yes. um, And studied piano and singing at one point, yes? I I took piano lessons. I was one of these people that really hated to practice, and I could sight read pretty well. And so for many years, I just took the lessons and would go into, uh, go into a lesson and just sight read. And it seemed to get me by for, for many years. And I only really studied piano through about mm, junior year in high school. 
Um, and then uh, that was basically the extent of uh, my formal training other than voice lessons well, later that's, on. That's one of the amazing things about Donald's story is that um, it's very rare for someone who has not had a conservatory background to have the kind of career you've had. Well, I was, I, I was just very lucky to meet some good people as I was, I was thinking, well, I can be a musician even though I didn't have the training. I actually went to Boston University and my major was chemistry there. And I, after a couple of years, I knew this wasn't going to be what I wanted to do in my life. But at that point, it was a little late to change majors. I wanted to get through the four years of college. And so I stuck it out and got my degree. What, what was, why chemistry? Were your parents uh, I always thinking had, that you needed something to fall back mm, on? No, or, I was always. How you fall back on uh, chemistry. I was very, uh, I, I always loved math and science. Um, I was always interested in the sciences, and so when I went to Boston University, I said, well, I'll, I'll, I'll major in chemistry. And uh, I, I did well in it. It wasn't that uh, I, I didn't, didn't, wasn't yeah. able to do it. I did very well to the point that they were so shocked that I didn't want to stay on and become a grad student in the chemistry department and all of that. But I just said, I, I just can't do this. I want to be a musician. I want to, I want to do something different. But you had an obsession with music from pretty yes. early on. Yes. Um, I had an aunt who loved opera. And by opera, I mean Traviata, Bohème, and, and uh, Butterfly. But and, and she took she, you to your first opera. She right? took me to my first opera, which was actually at the Old Met, two nights before the closing of the Old Met. It was a performance of Aida. Um, Birgit Nielsen was supposed to sing. At the very last minute, she canceled, and Leontine Price sang. So, um, Did you ask for your money back? No, I didn't. No, not at all. But I can remember sitting up in the top gallery on the side. It, it was, you know, for, for someone from Rochester, New York, it was my first trip to New York yeah. City. And wow. uh, I remember it uh, very well. Wow. Um, but the other interesting thing is that you pretty much figured out quickly that to get anywhere, you needed to just volunteer for whatever you could get. Yeah. Um, after, after college, I went to Europe for three years on a lark, so to speak. It, it was going to be a summer trip, and it ended up my staying there three years. And I took some voice lessons, <coughs> and I sang in a lot of choruses. And I actually sang in, in Herbert von Karajan's chorus, the Zingverein. And that was my first real contact with big time musical experiences. I mean, mm -hmm. we did Verdi Requiem with Mirella Freni and Krista Ludwig and, and St. Matthew Passion with Fischer Dieskau, Peter Schreier. Singing in the chorus would seem like, well, I'm just a small part of that, but I really got my education uh, performing in those kinds of groups, observing and always being aware of what the conductor was doing what he was doing with creating sounds, uh, how the orchestra was generating the sound. Um, I just, I, I didn't go and sing in choruses just to have fun. I really used it as a learning experience. But you must have had a good voice to get in. Oh, I had a, a, a I had horrible, oh, no. <laughs> but how could you get in to a major chorus like that? No, it, the Zinferein was a, not paid. And it was an amateur chorus. It was a large oratorio society in, in Vienna. It was founded by Brahms. Mm -hmm. It's been there forever. And it was a very good amateur chorus. And in, in all of the European cities, there are good amateur choral singers. 
And so I was good enough to get into. You were accurate. I was accurate, yeah. very accurate. Yeah. yeah. But I was like a, I was a second tenor with no top. You know, I couldn't, uh, I just basically sang what I could sing, and the top notes that I didn't have, I didn't sing. But, but there's ways to do that. So you wouldn't have hired yourself? No, probably not. Not for the Met, not for the Met Chorus. No. I never would have, got, would have gotten into the Met Chorus. Yeah. Yeah. And, but you then went back to Boston. Then I went back and to Boston. So you'd been working with uh, Musica, uh, Pro Musica. Chorus Pro Musica of Boston uh, was an organization founded in 1948, I believe, by Alfred Nash Patterson, who was a very famous choral conductor in New England. And uh, I joined while I was in college uh, in Boston in the late 60s. And then when I came back from Europe, I sort of became Bud's, Bud Patterson was what we all called him Bud, his right-hand man. Uh, I served as the uh, administrator of the organization. And then when he passed away in um, the early 90s, I became the, the music director. Mm -hmm. No, the early 80s. He, uh, I get the, it's so, so many years now. The, uh, the 90s it was. And I became, the, was it the 80s? Okay. As a, it was the 80s. It's been that long. Okay. <laughs> and so then I became the music director of this choral organization in Boston that was quite famous. They, they performed with the Boston Symphony under Leinsdorf, under Munch, before the Tanglewood uh, Festival Chorus came into existence. The Chorus Pro Musica was one of the big groups that, that performed in Boston with the big orchestral, orchestral works. And, um, and then I started playing in voice studios. And I right, think you, that's you what... You mentioned yes. this lady. Could you tell yes. us who she is? Uh, this is Clara Shear. She was a, a well-known voice teacher in Boston. Um, and she actually sang with Toscanini at La Scala. She sang with Mary Garden in Chicago. She had a beautiful coloratura soprano voice. And at age 28, I think it was, the nerves for her got so bad that she just stopped singing uh, professionally and became a teacher. And in Boston, around the time I came back from Europe, which would have been the early 70s, there were five or six real voice teachers at the time, teachers that really knew how to teach technique. Not, uh, they were not glorified coaches. They were really voice teachers. And I played in her studio. Again, my sight reading skills came into, came into play there because what happens in a voice studio is a student walks in and says, today I'm going to sing this, and they hand you the music, and hopefully you know it, and if you don't, you figure out a way to get through it. And that's where I also learned uh, more technical aspects of singing. And I've always been convinced that a chorus master has to be able to tell, teach his chorus how to individually sing better. You can't just take a choral sound and think by magic, you can talk in generalities, and the sound of the chorus is going to change. You have to really speak specifically to get the individual singers to sing better. So um, that's where I basically did my education as far as choral training, mm -hmm. playing in voice studios. Then I started playing for a small opera company in Providence, Rhode Island, uh, playing rehearsal. Oh, dear. Um, <laughs> this, I, I started out teaching, uh, playing piano rehearsals for opera productions, working with the local chorus, because the chorus in this company was just a, uh, basically a volunteer group. Um, 
and the company actually did some wonderful, wonderful productions with a lot of big, big singers. Robert Merrill, Roberta Peters, uh, would come down and star in, say, Tosca or Traviata. So we did a lot of very good things, um, and I was basically pianist, chorus master, second in command. And then one year, the director of the opera company decided to branch out and do ballet. Uh, she made a connection with some uh, people at the, the opera uh, company of Canada, uh, the ballet company of Canada. And these dancers came down, and we put together a production of Prokofiev's Cinderella, which is a very difficult uh, piece of music. And they asked me if I would conduct it. Well, I had never conducted anything in my life. And I knew even less about ballet. So the very first thing that I conducted was a full stage production of Prokofiev's Cinderella with orchestra. Wow. And then the following year, they did Nutcracker. And this, this is my mother and my sister uh, after my conducting Nutcracker. Um, before I'd ever conducted really anything else. It was a very strange uh, progression for me. This was before I'd taken over the Chorus for Music in Boston. Right. And basically from the 80s into the 90s, you went from one company to another working for one mentor after another. Yes. Um, and, and this is Roberto Benaglia, who the, you worked for at, in the Dallas Opera. Yeah. My big break was when I went to Dallas. Um, uh, the conductor at that time was Nicola Rechino, one of the great, We also had you know, yeah, there he is, maestro, um, who, of course, was one of Maria Collis's favorite right. conductors. And he was involved in the founding of the Dallas Opera Company, along with uh, Lawrence Kelly and, uh, uh, it was Lawrence Kelly and, and Maestro Rochini mm -hmm. founded the Dallas Opera Company. And he brought this chorus master that was in the previous slide with the geese singing, uh, singing at him, Roberto Benaglio, who was a very famous chorus master at La Scala, who after he retired, at Maestro Rochino's request, came to Dallas for our season, which lasted basically from September through December. And uh, I became Maestro Benaglio's assistant, uh, chauffeur, translator, uh, dry, everything, everything that to make Maestro Benaglio able to function in America. I was, I was thrown into that job. They brought me there because I had worked with Maestro Rochino's nephew in Providence, Rhode Island. This is, how, this, is how, this is how my life and a lot of other musicians' lives, how, the, how it evolves. Yeah. Uh, and, and Joseph Rochino, who's also a very famous conductor, he lives in New York, he said to me, you know, my uncle is doing Peter Grimes in Dallas, and their chorus master speaks six words of English. And he feels we need someone to go down in advance and just get the chorus up to snuff so that when Maestro Benaglio arrives, he doesn't have to worry about the fact that he only speaks six words of English and that and Peter that, Grimes is extremely difficult. And none of those words were in Peter Grimes. Exactly. He didn't know any of the words of Peter Grimes. And so that was, that was my step to Dallas, which then was the step to, to all the other uh, other jobs that just sort of opened up for me. Well, I made a list, <laughs> and at one point I had dates on them, but it came, became incredibly confusing because a lot of these were, were simultaneous. Oh, yeah, I was, uh, I was living out of suitcases for a yeah. while. Yeah, but you were the chorus master of 
during the, around the same period of uh, Opera Theatre of St. Louis, Canadian Opera Company, Opera de Lyon, X, the opera in X. Uh, you went back and forth to Dallas a few times. Uh, you were in the Chatelet doing a Berlioz festival. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and then you landed at the Lyric Opera of Chicago. Yes. Where you were from, I did keep those dates, 1991 to 2007. Um, I think that here you are with Bruno yes. Bartoletti. Um, yes, he would be uh, another one of the important uh, figures in my life. Maestro Bartoletti was a, was a maestro in, in all levels and a music director in all levels. He came to, to Chicago when we started our rehearsals for the season and he left Chicago after the last, uh, the last performance. He, was, he would conduct maybe three, three operas in the course of the year, but he was there for the entire season so that you always had this incredible resource to draw on. If you had a question about anything operatic, you went to Maestro Bartoletti. He uh, was not only a specialist in Italian operas, but he was a very well-known uh, conductor of contemporary pieces, uh, the Slavic pieces, Janacek. Mm -hmm. He did a lot of first performances in Italy of, of, uh, of Dalla Piccola. Uh, so he was a very well-rounded musician. He didn't just know everything, and he knew everything about Italian opera. Um, and he was one of those conductors that the te stick technique was not the clearest in the world, but once he gave the downbeat, you knew, you knew exactly how the piece was going to unfold. And he had this, just this beautiful way of conducting. And everybody, of course, adored him. The orchestra chorus adored him. And um, I was lucky enough to spend uh, 12, 13 years uh, as chorus master with Maestro Bartoletti as, as music director. Mm -hmm. And to have a music director that present all the time is now becoming almost impossible because conductors are taking jobs here and there. They're in and out of town. Um, and so this, this, was, this was a great, a great experience for me. Because he stayed put. Because he was yeah. always there. Right. Always Whether there. he was conducting or not. Whether he was conducting or not. Right. Always at rehearsals. Because Andrew yeah. Davis, I assume, was there too. Uh, Andrew Davis was what came at the end of my stay in Chicago. And he also had symphonic obligations elsewhere. And so mm -hmm. it, wasn't, it wasn't quite the same, the same situation of mm -hmm. having uh, a music director that was there the entire time. Yeah. You also pointed out John Elliott Gardner, oh. with whom you worked a lot in Europe. Yes, I was really lucky to, again, make a connection with John Elliott Gardner. I went to Lyon, as you mentioned, as chorus master for one year, and I met John Elliott. Didn't do any work with him directly, but he immediately said, you know, in a couple of years I'm going to do this big Berlioz project at the Chatelet, and we're going to do a Damnation of Faust, we're going to do uh, Romeo and Juliet, we're going to do the Requiem. And he said, I, I want you to come to Paris for, for that uh, project. And so that was my first contact with John Elliott. We had a, we had a wonderful time. Um, and then after that, we did a project at the Châtelet, which uh, involved uh, Les Troyens of, of Berlioz. And that production in, I think it was 2002 or two, 2003, was one of the most important 
I think, events musically in Europe uh, for, for many years. It was the first complete performance of Les Troyens in Paris using a lot of uh, uh, early instruments, authentic period instruments, mm -hmm. all of the banda, horns, trumpets, uh, saxophones, everything. He, John Elliott found this person that had collected all these instruments from the 19th century and they were able to refurbish these instruments and actually use them in this performance. And so we did, I believe, four performances uh, of the entire Les Troyens. The last one transmitted live, live all over Europe. And at that, at that point, live opera of that extent was not, mm -hmm. so, not so, uh, so common. And the fr your fr then you got to the Met um, actually doing some freelance work first. Right. Uh, because right. I guess they were between chorus masters. Right. They, um, um, they, were doing a uh, they were remounting the old Parsifal. And um, they asked me if I would come. Maestro Levine wanted me to come and, and do Parsifal. It was after the Chicago season had ended. And I thought, well, this, this is fabulous. Great opera. Great company. I'd never worked at the Met. I think everybody, every young American that grows up listening to the, the broadcast on Saturday afternoons, you have, on Saturday afternoon, I had to be home by 2 o'clock. I think they used to start at 2 o'clock. Yeah. You know, I two. had to be home by yeah. 2 o'clock because I had to listen to the broadcast. So I think when you grow up with that, you always someday want to yeah. go to the Met. And you're American. And I'm American. Also, yeah. And so they offered me this, this job to come and prepare Parsifal. And it was right at the time that Maestro Levine had his first accident in Boston, the first time he fell. And so uh, I came anyway, of course. And uh, it wasn't the same. He came to the performance. He couldn't have, been, couldn't have been nicer. But that was my first contact with the Met Chorus. And then uh, the following year, I came and did the Orfeo, and that was my first uh, working with Maestro Levine. And then the permanent appointment started. Right. Your first, I was looking at what happened your first season. Your first Met season <laughs> was 2007 and 8. And this is what you were thrown. Mm -hmm. New productions of Lucia, Macbeth, Iphigenie, Grimes, then revivals of War and Peace, Otello, Ernani, the Gambler, Satyagraha. Can I tell the Satyagraha story? Yeah. <laughs> Do you have more to say? First Emperor, Aida, Romeo, Balo. <laughs> when, when, when they called to tell me the rep for the season when we were talking and we were negotiating my going to New York, Satyagraha was nowhere to be seen on that list, okay? <laughs> nowhere. They read me this list and I said, you have got to be kidding me. I mean, who, who dreamt up thinking a season like this? <laughs> What chorus can get through all of this? Revival of War and Peace? How, I mean, how do you revive War and Peace? You've got to start from scratch to put War and Peace together. And I said, well, I mean, of course I will take the job. I think this is a most ridiculous season, but yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. And about three weeks after, I got a phone call, and they said, now, are you sitting down? I said, yeah. <laughs> you know, Peter went to London and saw a production and feels very strongly that we need to bring this to the New York and he wants to do it right away. And I said, okay, great. And they said, and it's Satyagraha. <laughs> and 
I, I don't know if any of you saw Satyagraha. When did they mention the language? Satyagraha, they did it in Chicago, yeah. before I got to Chicago. And two of my best friends were on that show, and they said it was the hardest thing they'd ever done, and if it ever came around again, they would never do it again. <laughs> and it was just stay clear of Satyagraha. So I said, you're going to add Satyagraha to the repertoire that you've already said, that I've already said was impossible? And they said, well, yes, we're going to do it. So uh, what was I going to say? I just said, well, sure, OK, Satyagraha it is. And so we, we did it. In, in Sanskrit. In Sanskrit. In Sanskrit. Right. Yeah. And you know, I was dubious. I got the score, and I started studying it. And I could see where it would not be to every, everyone's cup of, cup of tea, so to speak. But they sent me to London to see the production. It did a, did a revival, and I went over to London before we did it, and I saw it, and I was absolutely—I was blown away, absolutely yeah. memorized. If you, if you, if you trust, if you trust, and, and just put aside all your your preconceived idea of what a good opera is, and just sit and listen for ten minutes, and let it happen. I don't know if any of you saw it. I think you get you get hooked and by the end of the evening it's 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 there's a something spiritual something very special about it and the chorus the learn i always tell people the learning curve of satyagraha was like this and then they get an more angry and more angry and <laughs> frustrated and all of a sudden you see this little and then all of a sudden it goes like this and it just clicks and then the piece well, is just there. to memorize I mean, it'd be one thing if they could have their scores in front of them. Well, you know, we had little prompting screens at the side of the stage. Uh, little, little screens that had the first word of each phrase. The thing with Satyagraha is you would sing something 300 times. And the trick is knowing what, on number 301, what your next word was and when to move to that next text change. So we had these little screens on the side and at the front of the balconies mm -hmm. that just before we had a, a a, a change in pattern, there would be a word flash up there, and it would trigger something. Now, I don't. Uh, again, we can. Uh, the people that saw it. Do you remember the scene with the men reading the newspapers? Mm -hmm. And it's a ha 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 ha. Well, to to do that, there's no way you can sing ha 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 over and over for maybe a hundred times without a breath. So people have to figure out, when do I leave out a couple of notes so that I can just relax? And then, when does ha, 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 ha change to ha, 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 ha? You know, after singing, after singing maybe 50 Cs, when do you finally change to a D? So we had all sorts of ways mem with the prompting, with the memorization, with the prompter. And with counting. It, counting. You know, the prompter would have certain arrows that would show up or down or change this way. or It was, it was an adventure. Yeah. But once we got it, once, once, once we got into it and were able to sing it um, from beginning to end and get the sense of the sweep of the piece, they just adored singing it. And when we brought the piece back, I think three, years after, yeah. three or four years after, it was fabulous because we didn't have to go through this part of the learning curve. We already, we already knew the piece in a way, and, and we were able to improve on it. It's one of the best experiences I've had at the Met. Yeah. Oh, it's a great, it was a great evening. 
both both times. Um, I'd love to talk a little bit about the chorus itself. Mm -hmm. um, so the basic chorus is 80 people? Yes, 80 people. And then it can grow with extras. Yes. Uh, the largest it's grown since I've been here is to 149 for Meister for Singer. For Meister Singer, right. Yeah, Meister Singer. And Boris is also... Boris, I think, was 110. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Um, and then, of course, we shrink down. Um, in um, Don Giovanni, for example, there are only 16, 16 people on stage. Um, Cozy is maybe a little bigger. I think Don Giovanni's the smallest chorus that we put on stage. But but there's one chorus. It's yes. not as if yes. so there is a little bit of rotation possible, but not that much except for the evenings when yeah. it's it, it it loses weight. The only the only rotation that we have is if we have an opera that doesn't use the full eighty right. people. For example, tomorrow is our last Yennefer. Yennefer uses about fifty six or fifty seven. So there are some people not in Yennefer. But if we have a week where we're doing Aida, Boam, which is right now, and Mano Lesco next, next week, for example, um, the same people will sing all of those performances. So we have seven, what we call a seven-show week, counting the matinee on Saturday. And uh, contractually, if anyone is scheduled to sing more than three consecutive sevens, meaning three weeks in a row of seven shows a week, in that fourth week they have to be given a night off. And we have to, you know, we, yeah. it's called a spot out. And we have to take it. At the end of the year, if you look at the calendar, we have a, a slew of seven, uh, seven show weeks with big operas, Idomeneo, Fidelio, Puritani, Carmen, you know, a whole, a whole list of full chorus operas. So unlike the orchestra, we don't have a rotation when each opera calls for and, full chorus. And they're rehearsing all day yeah, at that's, the same yes, time. That's, that's the, other, the other problem is that while we're performing every night, uh, we'll have usually a stage rehearsal in the morning, maybe starting at 10.30, going to 1 or 2 o'clock. And if there is additional music preparation that has to be done, we'll then do a rehearsal, which is called a gap rehearsal, between the morning staging and the performance. We call that area the gap. And we love to try to keep the gap empty. But it doesn't always work just when the schedule gets very And difficult. you start full rehearsals about August of um, This year of we started season? August 1st. So yeah. we do eight weeks of, of rehearsals prior to the opening night of the season. Um, usually the first three weeks of that preseason are just music rehearsals. And then, usually by week four, we already start staging, uh, not on the stage, but in the rehearsal rooms uh, down on the lower level. Uh, we'll start staging Guillaume Tell, for example. We started staging after, after three weeks yeah. of summer yeah. music rehearsals. And actually, can you get some early musical rehearsals in at the end of a season That's what, for the next yep, season? Exactly. We, we found some, a way this past spring to start Tell and L'Amour de Loin uh, in May of the preceding season uh, just because we had to. We, we, yeah. we would have run out of time. Yeah. yeah. And the, the problem is that once we get into the season, like right now, 
it becomes very difficult to musically prepare the operas that are coming up because of staging rehearsals and performances. Our time gets limited. So we have to try to get things sort of learned in the summer so that when we get later on in the season, all we need is maybe two, two rehearsals and we can get the opera going. Nabucco, for example, comes into the rep in a few weeks. We've already done the bulk of the Nabucco rehearsals in the summer. I think we have three rehearsals maybe to polish Nabucco before, before we have to perform it. So what happens when somebody's sick? Or what happens if six people are sick? We, we make do. You just don't have we, as many people. We, we just don't have, have as many people. Because uh, there's no, you, see, you have extra chorus, but that's specific operas. Yeah, we have extra chorus for specific operas. The, the thing is, with replacements, they have to go through the entire musical rehearsal period. Right. They have to have a costume. It's like jury they, duty. They have know? to rehearse the staging. You can't say, okay, uh, do you know this opera? Yeah, I know this opera. Okay, now go on. Well, it doesn't work that way. An, uh, uh, an orchestra can substitute someone in. Right. Uh, they've got the score in front of them. They're seated. It probably won't be as good as their partner that's made all the rehearsals, but it's not impossible. Whereas with a chorister, it is impossible to say, okay, I know you've sung this in San Francisco. Come on out here. I need you to just go on in this performance. It just, it just can't it, happen. It just won't work. No. Yeah, yeah. So I thought it'd be interesting to talk about, I, I read or saw, I can't remember which, an interview where you kind of one by one went through your methodology of, mm. of what happens in the life of learning a production. Um, and I'd love to, to look into that now. Um, in other words, we walk into List Hall for the first day of rehearsing yeah. Tell or something like uh, that. Especially a new opera, especially one that or is new to most of the sure. chorus? Um, I, usually start, I usually start with the text um, because uh, you can't really sing well unless you know what vowel you're singing on. So before you can actually begin singing, singing the notes, you've got to make sure the text is correct. So I uh, make sure that everyone has a translation, first of all, because I can't go through each opera word by word and say exactly what each word is, although it will often come up in the course of a rehearsal. But I also give them um, basically a transliteration of the language uh, into a system that's called IPA, International Phonetic Alphabet, in which you can write symbols that show uh, the vowels and the consonants for, any, for most languages. Even Sanskrit you could do an IPA for. So for example, if you're reading a French text, you can read this, this coded text and you'll be able to pronounce French if you know what all the symbols mean. And the symbols are the same between French and Italian. There are certain symbols in French that don't exist in Italian. Nasals, the nasal, un, un, all of those sounds don't exist in Italian. But there are symbols for all of these. So I give them the entire, their entire chorus text, which for Guillaume Tell I think was six pages of, of one line is the French text, underneath that the English translation, above it the transliteration or the, what symbols each of the vowels are. Is this a closed E in French? You have this E sound, you have an open E, eh, you, and then you have the, sh the muet which is E. Uh. All you see is an E, 
you have to know exactly which E it is in a chorus situation because everybody has to be singing on the same vowel for, for the sound to blend, for, for overtones to line up, for the diction to be clear. So that has to be done first before we can worry about singing things. So we will speak the text. If the rhythm is not complicated, we can start right off just reading it rhythmically according to the score. And then, for me, with a piece like Guillaume Tell, we can just give our first note and sing. Certainly, the Met Chorus musically is an extremely uh, advanced level of, of musician. Um, in some choruses, they will do sectional rehearsals, and they'll start with just the basses alone and teach the basses their notes, the tenors, and so forth. But with this chorus, usually we can start right off the bat um, reading all the notes together. Uh, we'll start under tempo. Once we've got the rhythm lined up, we can move clearly through the music. We'll stop, we'll correct either diction issues, rhythmic issues, pitch issues. Right off the bat, though, I try to make sure that they understand what kind of a sound, uh, a, so a, so a color, a direction we're going for in every line they sing. I think when you have to sing as much music as we do, the only way to keep it straight in your head is to really have a musical intention with every phrase that you sing. It makes it so much easier to learn music mm -hmm. if you have an intention at, at that given, given moment. So if a phrase needs to be light and staccato or, or you know, bouncier, we will start with, it I won't add that at the end. I will, something to hang on to. Yeah, I will try that. to get that in almost immediately. Because once, uh, if, if you make that part of the learning process of the, of the, of the piece, it's much easier than, than learning it you know, by rote and then starting at the beginning and trying to add the musicality or the style or or the differences between the phrases. It's much easier if you incorporate that right off the bat. So, and then it's a question of, of refining it. And I'm, I'm one of these people that likes to refine. I, people say I stop too much. Well, I don't know. I, with, with, with the chorus at the Met, we don't need long repetitions. We need, we need, we need refinement. And um, I, I like to just go for little details uh, all the time. At some point, of course, you got to let them sing the whole piece so that they see physically, with Tell, for example. Mm -hmm. There are a couple of choruses in the first act of Tell that are just, it's like singing Wagner. It, the, t the tenor part is very high. The words sort of are endless, and you don't get enough time to breathe. And in this production, we're moving around so much. So at some point, you have to let them sing the piece from beginning to end to get an idea physically, what do I need to do with a certain moment to make sure I can get through the entire piece mm -hmm. in, 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 in good vocal health. Um, and then, of course, we have to add the memory. Uh, that's the other you know, big problem with the chorus. The orchestra has their scores. Mm -hmm. A concert chorus usually is reading a score, but, but we have to memorize everything we do. So, um, so are you repeating day after day, week after week? For that specific score? No, they, like we, no, no. Tell, I would wish, I wish we could rehearse two weeks, just Guillaume Tell, go to stage, and do it. But it, it doesn't work that way. We, we can't. So, so with Tell, it's, it's my constructing a, a learning plan. I will 
carefully uh, plan what I'm going to rehearse in any one rehearsal, making sure I haven't let too much time go between, say, the times I've done this specific chorus. If I haven't done this in a week, I'd better do it today. Or if I've done something for the past couple days, maybe I know I can leave this for, for a bit. But with Tell, it seemed like we could never get ahead of the curve because there was just so much, so much music to learn. Mm -hmm. Tell was one of those pieces that didn't really fall in until we actually staged it. Just because we needed, that's another. The other thing that the chorus does, it, as far as memory, is once you start staging, it actually helps you. Because you say, oh, here's where I'm standing when I sing this particular line. And we repeat this three times. It's different the third time, but I'm over here the third time. So I remember, this is the time I have to remember to change the text, for example. Well, it's um, like memorizing dance steps. Exactly. Well, exactly. Yeah. That's how you remember. And, well, the, we yeah. also have to memorize dance and steps. You, and you have choreography, <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 Right. Do you ever say to them, You've got to do, you've got to do homework. They know they have. To, they know they so have. So they just they constantly, right? They know they have right. to do homework. Right, right. They know they have to do it. Um, it we can't. Uh, it's it's interesting to to watch them in their time off. They usually take the text that I give them, and then write their own version of it on index cards, which they carry around during staging rehearsals, um, so they can quickly reference something or. They're, they're, say that you're staging and you have a complete blank. You get to the end of that portion of the rehearsal, you can pull out your card and say, oh, this is where I forgot this, this, this. Um, and they do that on their own time. You'll see, them, you'll see them in the cafeteria with their cards. You'll see them at their dressing room stations in between acts with their cards. They're, they know how difficult a job they yeah. have and they, yeah. they take it very seriously. And you know, as you, uh, when you started out, you talked about how we're getting these reviews and the, you know, the recognition. We're now, we're now at such a level that it is a real, we feel the responsibility, I think, now at this point. And maybe that's sort of what you were alluding to at the yeah. beginning. Yeah. It just seems like right now we've, we've reached a level where I think we hold our own with the orchestra. And, uh, and this orchestra is such an incredible instrument and now it's taken a while, but I think now we are at this same level, and you know, which you said was your goal. You told one yeah. uh, reporter, I think, for the Times when you first came in, that that was your goal. Yes, it is. And and that being said, our our big goal is now to we we want to do concerts with the orchestra. There's just, you know, there's such contractual problems why yeah. why it isn't happening. But we're we're ready to do now. Yeah, big pieces with the orchestra. Yeah. So you're working with a stage director and sometimes choreographer long before you're really working with a conductor. Yes, right? yes. But do you get to at least talk it out with the conductor to get a um, sense of... Sometimes it depends on the conductor's availability when they're around or on the comp... Uh, sometimes if it's a piece that's brand new and I really need input from the conductor, I will search him out wherever he is around the world and you know, try to get some questions yeah. out to him. Yeah. Um, most of most of that work, though, is done is done in the rehearsals uh, with the conductor. As I said, the great thing about Chicago is we had our music director there all the time. Now conductors tend to come in uh, oftentimes a couple weeks into the rehearsal process. The soloists and the stage directors have already started working. The chorus, 
Most of our preliminary rehearsals are without the conductor. So it's, it's, things are changing in that respect. So all, all the more reason that the Met Chorus needs to be flexible, musically very secure uh, when the conductor arrives. Is the chorus, I get the sense that the chorus is a very different kind of ensemble with different kinds of singers. And I've, I've heard you allude to that a little bit um, than it used to be. Then it, you, yes. Now, the, the new members of the chorus now have been, I think primarily for the past five or six years, soloists, young singers who are in, in the midst of trying to have a solo career. Some of them getting small, small roles with smaller companies or even small roles at the Met, but are just not able to um, find enough employment to, to live comfortably, to support a family maybe. Um, if you want to live in New York or near New York, you've got to earn a certain amount of money, and it's very hard for young singers now. So many of the regional opera companies are paring down. Um, and so I found that in the past maybe five years that, that we, are, we are basically engaging young soloists that have decided, uh, I'd rather have security. I know I'm going to make good music at the Met. I know this is a great chorus. I know, I know it's going to be a good experience. I will have a guaranteed salary. I'll have benefits. I don't have to travel away from my family. Um, and it's a wonderful job. And so I've been benefiting by getting these, these voices that are of such a high level. Mm -hmm. um, and also they have stage experience. And it, it's been a win-win, I think, both sides. A back, back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, whatever, the chorus, the, the chorus mus musical level of choristers was not nearly what it, what it is today. Um, you can hear it on some of the old recordings. Which is also true of the orchestra. Right? Well, the orchestra too. The orchestra too. But, yeah. but, yeah. Uh, but to perfect an instrument, you've got to get to a certain level. You can sort of, if you take an amateur chorus, I think you can, you can see that you can get, you really just, if, if there are enough numbers there, you don't need the greatest voices in the world. And I think opera choruses back then were more on that, on that level as far as the, the singers went. Yeah. But today, at least now at the Met, it's totally, totally different. But you used to hear that you didn't necessarily want soloists in your chorus because they may not be able to blend. See, but that's my problem. You know, that's, <laughs> that's what I do. Uh, I, you know, I, there's no way to hire 80 people that have the same voice, that, that, have, that have the same quality of vibrato, the same size, the same color. Um, I'm going to have 80 people with, with this wide range of, of musical ability, size of voice, um, color, timbre. It, it's it's yeah. the job of the chorus master to find a way to make that sound. That's what I learned from Benaglio. Benaglio was the sound, the chorus master known for creating sound. And I was so lucky to sing in the chorus with Von Karian, who also orchestrally created these just rich, incredibly beautiful sounds. And then Benaglio showing me how to do it with a chorus. It wasn't until I worked with Benaglio that I even, I even thought it was a career. It was something that you would devote your life to. 
A lot of people use chorus master position as sort of a, it's the next step conductor, or you know, start as a pianist, then I'll work a little with the chorus, I'll learn that, but I eventually want to be a conductor. Uh, it wasn't until I met Benaglio that I knew I, I wanted to be a chorus Have master. you ever wanted to conduct? No. I, no? I've done, I haven't, no. I mean, I've, you have. We I've been offered things since I, ever since I became a chorus master, I have not. I conducted some chorus concerts. I did some things in Radio France. Radio France, I either get Radio, Radio, Radio France. If you say radio, you gotta say France, but if you say Radio France, you've got it. Um, I did some choral concerts with them when I was doing these projects in, in Paris, but uh, I haven't conducted an opera in a long time, and don't want to. And don't want to. Don't want to, yeah, no. Okay, I'm gonna embarrass you a little bit. Okay. Um, so about six places I read that you're the best in the world. Uh, okay. So the question is, and I, I, I don't disagree with that. So what made you the best? <laughs> um, I think, I think, well, uh, let's say I, I, don't, I don't say I'm the best. I really worked, I was so lucky. I was so lucky to meet Maestro Benaglio. So lucky to, to be working in a company like Dallas when I was just starting out. At that time, Dallas was all about music. They had the greatest prompter in the world. They had Virginio. Um, the greatest singers would come to Dallas. Mm -hmm. And um, that's where, that's what changed my life. And so uh, I, I appreciate, I appreciated then that that whole, um, devotion to the voice and sound and musicianship. And it tends, those, the, the basics tend to get lost a little bit today. Um, at the Met, things are big at the Met. We have these big productions and there, it, there's so much technology now involved. When I get back to just rehearsing the chorus in List Hall, just us, just making the score and just voice, that's what, that's what I started out being overwhelmed by when I was in Dallas, and that's what I, I, I enjoy most about, mm -hmm. about my, my work now. Um, of course, we're part of, we've, I then have to send it out onto the stage and sort of have to, have to leave them in a, in a sense, but they ha they've developed this identity now that, that I'm very proud of. But you also have to do a lot of problem solving, and that sounds like, one of the things you're very good at well, is, is you've got to work with a conductor, you've got to work with a stage director, and you've got to try to solve the problems that are thrown by the set, by yeah, the direction yeah. of the stage. Maybe, maybe that's where my math and science background is finally paying out. It's paying off. You know, I, it, you're, you're right. There are a lot of components that, that we have to maneuver our way through. Can you go to a, an opera in some other house and enjoy the performance? Can you, or do you, or do you, are you constantly thinking, they did this wrong, why aren't they doing this, why aren't they doing that? Um, it's just, if, I'm gonna, if I have free time, it's just not what I want to do. <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, you know, I think some days when we're doing performances of, of operas that I like grew up with and I heard records and I, I said, oh, I would love to go back and listen to that recording that I listened to when I was 15 years old. It was like the first time I heard 
Pagliacci, let's say, with Maria Callas and De Stefano and Gobbi. And I, every time we do these operas that I sort of grew up with, I just don't have the time even to go home and listen to those sorts of things. What do you listen to? If, do you listen to any music when you're not? Usually listening? piano music or orchestral music, yeah. usually, yeah. if, if I'm listening to music. At yeah. home, I don't. I, I listen to music in my office when, when I'm sort of tied there just having to do paperwork or yeah. things like that. But it's basically non-vocal. How much of your work is administrative? Do you uh, a that? lot. A lot. Yeah. A lot. I'm very lucky, though. I have a great staff. The other, comp the other thing about the course, and I think it's tied into why we're successful. I have a manager. I have an administrat administrative assistant and an assistant manager. Uh, the managers both sing in the chorus. They're both tenors. But so my department works really well, and so I have a huge support staff. But That's good. there's a lot of administrative work to yeah. deal with. B budget meetings. I mean, you can understand the, the problems that we're having right now. The chorus budget is huge. I mean, it's very expensive to, to uh, you know, put together a chorus. We would just. And the things that create costs are just crazy because our pay structure is dependent on how many hours we work in the day, how close we work to a performance. It's very complicated just to generate the payroll for the chorus. And we had a situation next week where they've decided that we don't have to put costumes on for a rehearsal. So there is a cost savings in that, of course, because they don't have to come early to put their costume on and you don't pay the wardrobe. But because of not having costumes in the one rehearsal, we were able to shift a rehearsal to another time. Same rehearsal, same personnel, same opera. Just shifted slightly, saved $10,000. Wow. Just by a, a simple little thing like that. And we spent half, Kirk, Kurt Finney and I spent a lot of our time figuring out how to save money so that when we need to spend money, we, we have it, yeah. if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you all very much, and thank you so much. That was the Met Guild's Paul Gruber interviewing Met Opera Chorus Master Donald Palumbo. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll take a moment to leave a review in iTunes, or you can email us at info at metguild.org. Stay tuned for an upcoming episode about the Mets' 2017-18 season. I'm Naomi Baratera. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast.